Tomorrow Into Today, a podcast dedicated to sharing the knowledge and language of artificial intelligence in the Department of Defense. Join us as we discuss the passion projects for some of today's brightest minds and how artificial intelligence is being cultivated, procured, and delivered throughout the U.S. government. Be prepared to learn how artificial intelligence has become a part of everyday life and is working to support and further government missions. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of AI Proficiency Turning Tomorrow Into Today. I'm Ariel Moore, the producer of this podcast. Again today, we have Bonnie Evangelista from the CDAO, helping us gather relevant knowledge and expertise from our guest today, Vince Pecorero, Lead Program Manager of DAF Digital Transformation Office. So thank you for joining us today. Bonnie, the floor is yours. Good to see you again. Thanks for having me on today. You're welcome. So Swath, we've not known each other for very long. I feel like we kind of crossed paths kind of serendipitously. You heard about the solution, the Tradewind Solutions Marketplace. And then again, we kind of intersected on some government innovation conversations and that kind of teed us up to have this conversation because kind of heard a rumor that you're doing something different with regard to IP or intellectual property and licensing. So that's always interesting for my team. Let's, let's just start with who you are, <laughs> where you work, and then like how you kind of came to this intersection of I need to do something different about IP and licensing in particular. For sure. Yeah. So uh, my name is Vince Pecorero, but I helped found AppWorks and there they gave us a call sign. Everyone had a call sign to help break down the rank structure. And that's where I got my SWAF call sign. I've been a career contracting officer up until my time in AppWorks. In fact, I was actually the most warranted contracting officer in, in the Air Force at one point, which is a weird thing to say for contracting officers because, you know, we get these unlimited warrants. But I also had the grants and agreements warrant that was unlimited, not just my procurement warrant. Yeah. And then on top of all that, I had the 10 USC 2371B OT warrant. I was one of the, I was the first one in the Air Force to get that. So you have to have a separate yeah. OT warrant for 2073 or it's now 4023, right? Yep. Yep. Had to have oh, a separate okay. warrant for it. So that was in 2016, I got that warrant, 2017, something like that, 16. Okay. And uh, it was a funny, like, I never thought of it that way. No one, like, bestowed the title upon me. It's most warranted contracting officer in the Air Force. Once I left and went over to become a program manager, effectively with AppWorks, it was something I would use because the contracting officers I was trying to help bring, bring along in this innovation pathway uh, they really didn't want to hear anything from a program manager. Like, wait a second, guys, I'm, yeah. on, I'm on your team. Like, this is, yeah. we're, we're from the same it's build, like a, from the same cloth. Yeah. Yeah, so that uh, that effort uh, where I, I used the OTs, that was with Light Attack. We did directed OTs, which was the first of their kind under the new, under the new rules for the Air Force. Uh, prior to that, I'd been a contracting officer on large acquisitions, B-21. I did the early stage in GAD. I think this is going to be a lot of Air Force stuff. Yeah, I work for the Air Force. So sorry for the, the Army folks out there and everyone else listening, but really cool programs, big A acquisition stuff. And then I went over to do this innovation thing with AppWorks and it was a lot of fun. And we kind of reinvented acquisition again from like the RFP process. We turned it on its head uh, with our AppWorks challenge concept. And then we did a whole bunch with the SIPR program to really democratize that. So it wasn't just a thing that lived in the laboratory. It was something that was open to a whole bunch of different companies and had a very strong commercial focus, like commercialization focus. You know, that time with AppWorks was like 
some of the best times I had in my career because we were really just running with scissors and we had uh, in the Air Force, our, our SAF AQ was uh, Dr. Roper at the time. He really empowered us to go go do. And we, we did a lot of stuff with a very small team. And then, you know, as all good things, the bureaucracy crept in and it was time for me to go. So from there, I moved over to this job in the digital transformation office. And I, I got this job in, I want to say it was July 4th of 2020. So right in the middle of the pandemic, which is a weird time to start a, a job. No, it would, it would have been July 4th, 2021. So I've been at it for a little over a year. And again, brand new office. They pulled me over. I did my interview for the job, not knowing what digital transformation was. I was Googling it as they're interviewing me. I thought I had actually applied for a different job and they saw my resume and like pulled it in for this job. And the interview went really well. In fact, 15 minutes later, I got a phone call from the office saying, hey, you got the job if you want it. And I took the job. And I think what they were planning on having was like a very traditional program manager that would like go palm for money and like go through all the administrivia that, you know, normal program office would have to handle. Uh, and I haven't done any of that, or at least haven't done any of that very well. I, I've really focused on coming up with new ideas, how to change the, the way we're doing business. And uh, that's kind of led me to intersect with you and because you're doing the same thing. You are doing business differently through the trade one marketplace is an absolute game changer. It, it, it's going to change the way we buy stuff in, until the bureaucrats come in and ruin it for, for us. But right now it is the way that the Air Force is going to buy a whole bunch of stuff. At least my office is going to buy a whole bunch of stuff through there. I'm very excited about it. I've been working with companies on how to put their, their videos together. I've been working with, I just got done with the evaluation panel for the first, my first cycle on that your team. And it was again, really well done. I used valid eval as a digital tool, which was also cool to see in use. We did use some of that with AppWorks as well when we were looking at things, but it was good to see in this format. Yeah. So that's how we came across each other because you are a true innovator and I'm trying to keep up with it with the cool kids. That's how I feel. So it's safe to say you've been around the block. I would say on a contracting acquisition front, especially in this, whether you call it the innovation space, or I guess in a former life, we called it the rapid acquisition space. I feel like it's, can we just suck a little bit less today than we, or tomorrow than we did today kind of thing, right? I think all of us are just trying to do that thing. And I want to, there's a couple things that you said that were interesting. I want to dive, but I want to go back to the first thing you said you, that you all get call signs and yours is SWAT. So we're, what's the story behind SWAT? I know there's, there's oh, got, man, it's like a, a, right. There's a story. It's super nerdy. So when the, the person that was forming AFWorks decided that he needed to go put together a team or was tasked to go put together a team, he called me up and I just gotten off or I was in the middle of flight attack we'd just gotten off of the uh we had a plane crash and I, I had been out in the desert for a month dealing with the plane crash and I was, I was really salty on just the government in general and how they handle some of the notifications and, and everything and he calls me and he's like hey I heard you know how to do these OT OTAs and and you've been doing it for a lot of different company or a lot of different uh, efforts and you're you're kind of proliferating this skill set Said, oh yeah, and I just launched into the swath of tools that I have in my tool belt. And he decided ah. that he's gonna now either call me swath or tool. So I'm glad he pick was pick, pick swath. But the, that's what he would always call me. And then when we finally got the organization stood up, uh, the name the name stuck. People 
people started to gravitate towards it and use it more. And then we interacted with so many companies during that time frame that it was actually a lot easier for me to balance my personal life and my personal business life with my, my government role with all these external companies. Because whenever someone called me Swath, it was like automatic. My brain is thinking this way. Whenever someone called me you know, Vince or Vinny or whatever, like it would stigmate different parts of my brain and how I should be thinking and responding and where my headspace should be. So very helpful actually to have a call sign. And then getting rid of okay. the brain structure with call sign, man, powerful tool. Ah, can you elaborate a little bit on that? So with the call sign, how did it eliminate the rank structure in your environment? Uh, so if you, if you are in a traditional military environment and someone's got a higher rank than you or has a higher rank than you, it, it is inappropriate not to address them with the SIRS and everything else, unless you're using a call sign. With the call sign, you're trying to speak quickly to them, you're addressing them, and we didn't actually wear any uniform. <clears throat> I'm a civilian, but we had a lot of military in, in the group. And without having the rank structure on someone's uniform and then using a call sign, it allowed everyone to have a voice in the organization. So we had some enlisted folks that work with us. We had officers of all different rank. And it doesn't matter where you come from in the organization, you could have a good idea. And that idea needs to get out. And that's kind of the methodology we used in the early stage AFWorks. There is very low rank and file uh, captains would walk into general's offices regularly and just have a conversation with them and tell them what they need to hear and get feedback and on what to do and they'd march out and say hey this general said you're going to do this and they'd slam the table and we would go and break down the walls and get things done now that can only last for so long before you ruffle some feathers and that's i'm sure what happened in afworks and why it's got much more structure around it today but that's kind of the cool thing about doing something new. You get to be, you get to shape that culture early on and then and then leverage a lot of that newness. Like there's no rules yet. That's what you're doing with Trade One AI. There's literally the rules are wide open. You guys are inventing them as as you're going. That's what I did with OTAs early on. And I think that's what you, we're gonna end up doing with how we use AI in, in the future and how we proliferate that technology throughout the military. It's, I, I don't know if you can see my background, this is uh, the earth as a Banksy, which is an artist made on Midjourney. So an AI tool that I have found because I'm trying to learn all the digital stuff as part of the digital transformation office. But I'm, it is so powerful, these tools. I mean, I, yeah. I know we'll get into that later, but just so powerful what we can do and being able to shape the future by being early to the future, that, that, that's, that's really where you see the benefits pay off. Yeah, I think there's something, there's a little bit of a dichotomy. It's something special yet very hard to do what you're describing with regard to even something as simple as like how we call uh, upon each other by name, because even though you have your call signal and if you're talking to your superior, you still know they're your superior. So there's some kind of, I don't know if it's reciprocity or recognition that that has to happen in the culture where even though you know that there's there's a nuance there that you're describing where that kind of flattens the rank and file structure. Is, I don't know if I'm making sense, but how did that happen like in your setting? I'm just trying to go a little deeper. Well, it takes the, that, that top leader saying, look, rank does not matter here. Rank matters everywhere else in the military for a lot of good reasons, especially in times of war. But in the innovation space, 
it's not going to be your general that has a great idea. It, it's not going to be, especially when you're looking at new technology, it's not going to be the people that have been around the same stuff for so long that have the good ideas. It's the people that have new eyes and a new view on, on how a problem could be tackled or solved that are really going to get after the great ideas. And you need to hear from them. And normally they're going to be part of your younger force where they're going to be people that were maybe, you know, weekend warriors, some type of either guardsmen or reservist that sees a lot of stuff out in the real world and then can bring those ideas back into the military structure. You know, the rank file military doesn't always view their the reservists and the guardsmen on the same planet on the same levels, but they have so much value. And we've leveraged those guys very heavily, those men and women very heavily inside AppWorks because that's where the good ideas were coming from. Industry is moving much faster than it ever had before. And from our standpoint, if we needed to capture that, so it was, it was an operational imperative for us to break down the rig structure and allow everyone to have a, a voice. So I really appreciate what you said. It's, I think it's a truth that I, I just hope people can sit with, maybe reflect a little bit, maybe see what they're doing in their own setting to to understand how that's impacting them. I'll go ahead and move on to something else you said about the bureaucracy caught up to, it sounds like some of the specialness of what, when you, you referred to it as like some of the best years of your career and then something happened. Can you elaborate a little bit more on the, the, the something that happened from your perspective? On, like, I understand, you know, sometimes these things are bigger than ourselves, but just from your perspective or your observation, what, what changed that made it not as either fun or challenging? So there's, a lot of rules in government, as you know, we, we have to live with a lot of these rules and play with them. And there's so many rules that you show me the person and I'll show you how, how they're breaking the rule. Everyone's breaking some rules, some way, some form. And when you ruffle a lot of feathers, when you're a new organization, an innovation organization, people are going to come out of the woodwork if you upset their apple cart. You, you've changed their work scope. You brought change in their life and change is scary for a lot of people. And, and that will cause them to be on a defensive mode, or maybe even go into attack mode, kill the change, kill the cancer. A lot of people view innovation as a cancer, right? It can spread. And if it spreads too fast, it overtakes its host. And sometimes you need the host overtaken to, to get real change, lasting change. But a lot of people would view, not a lot of people, some people would view innovation as a cancer, especially some of these groups that really had a lot of success early on. AppWorks was one of those for sure. And I mean, I, I think I was part of like seven different IGs, you know, complaints. And it's not because we did anything wrong. They found almost nothing. And the stuff they did find was like relatively benign. You know, we put a fair share jar out and there's only $10. In it. At the end of the day, it was my 10 bucks too. So like none of the other people at the event put money in. Again, that's on individuals, integrity and everything else. And we, we know what the rules are, but at the same time, like, is that a rule that we're going to stop doing innovation events where we have the social aspect because we can't count on people to put their five or 10 bucks in the fair share jar? Like, come on, that, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. We got in trouble for t-shirts. We would have t-shirts that were branding the events, which people loved, you know, trying to get a t-shirt, getting the swag and how we, we got those things and we got them through our, our contract that did outreach for us, but so many people wanted them. We just said, hey, contractor, put it on the website and let people buy it at cost. No one makes any money off it. Just, oh my goodness, did that cause some problems? So we, we had lots of things like that, that 
people were able to pick at of like, hey, you didn't do this the right way. Um, you moved so fast, you broke glass, and I got cut by it. So I'm going to come after you because you cut me with the broken glass. That that's going to happen in every organization that that's a change maker. It will happen to the trade one team. I guarantee it. Like you are going to open some apple carts and people are going to come after you. And you just got to know that going into in, into the game. When we start using AI, you know, very prolifically throughout the the armed services, people are going to come after that. Like, guaranteed. Yeah. Happening. It's already happening. And to your point, are we already finding ways to integrate uh, these tools for mundane things, whatever type of day-to-day ops stuff that we have to handle? So for me, it's a little tiring when it's, why, why are we fighting it? Why aren't we finding a way to integrate it or to leverage or optimize it? Because it is happening. It's funny you mentioned that companies are using the AI to write proposals. So it, it didn't come through in this cycle, but it, it will come through in the February cycle for the trade win. One of the videos was fully made with AI. There's a human talking in it. That person is not real. There's a bunch of B-roll video with bombers and all sorts of other stuff in the background that all got sourced off the internet. The whole editing, they use four different AI tools. I know the company because I'm told them to go, go down this pathway. And I've seen the video. You would never know it was AI made. And it's completely AI and it's got a person talking to you, everything's synthetic about it, but they convey their yeah. message and it took, it took them four, day, four days to make it, but they said they can make one in 15 minutes now. Pretty incredible. But some people like might hear that and be like, oh my gosh, that's like, you can't do that. But it, but honestly, that's lowering the barrier to entry. And that was the whole goal of even using the video medium was so whether we're doing written documents, submissions or videos, AI can do both is what you're telling me. <laughs> so oh, if, oh, it, absolutely. if somebody can con- convey, a, convey a message in 15 minutes and put that in front of the government, that's a win. I don't know. Now there's ethics behind that. I'm, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get into the ethics piece, but I'm not, I'm not saying I've, we've solved world hunger here, but there's rather than ignoring it or denying it's happening, like let's, let's take it and start asking those hard questions and figuring out like, what does right look like in this setting? Cause it is happening. Well, that's the cool thing about being new to the space. And I, you know, I, I mentioned this earlier, but when you, when you're a first mover, you have the advantage to set the rules to your liking. I give you an example from, from the OT time that OT authority that I mentioned was to do military prototype or was to prototyping. What I wanted to do with the OTs was to go make a business deal with industry. I got industry to give us airplanes. I didn't pay them any money for the airplanes. Instead, I fueled their airplanes, wrote a report about their military utility. They paid for all the sustainment, which is really expensive. They paid for a whole bunch of stuff around the airplanes. I could never do that deal in a traditional traditional no. contract because the government can't, yeah. you can't really do that. But with an OT, no. I could. But I had to make sure that the prototyping authority extended to, to however I was going to frame it. So I framed it as prototyping military utility. These are commercial airplanes I was flying, you know, A29, AT6, like these, these airplanes were weaponized commercial airplanes effectively, or trainers in some cases, like they existed. What am I prototyping? Well, I'm I'm prototyping military utility. Do they fit well inside the military construct? Can we use these in military missions? I worked on the, on the front end to make sure that that was included in the guide that went out for how to do OTs. I made sure that they had military utility as an appropriate use. I also made sure that it had color of money, a lot bigger than 3,600 funding, which is in the Air Force R&D funding. 
So you got you to gotta play the chess game a little bit. But when you're the first mover, you get to set some of those rules when people are writing them. And I think you're going to, you're doing that with Trayvon AI and the AI space is going to need people to do that to help define what is okay and what isn't okay and where we want to sit in between that. And if we have the guardrails and we, we kind of, we do them with the end state in mind, like, Hey, I want the end result to be, I have lower bar- barriers to entry for companies to come in. Well, that's going to change the way I frame the rules. I, if, if my goal is to have lower barriers to entry, I'm going to probably make less rules around what you're allowed to do to get into the game. And, and the first movers get to define that. So I'm super glad you are one of the first movers in the space and we'll, we'll see where it goes, but mm-hmm. the bureaucracy will catch up. And this is, yeah. this is one of the bad parts about government. You know, <laughs> I get on a tangent sometimes, so just uh, indulge me for a second, but there's a reason there's a space force. Right, it was born out of the Air Force. It's because our culture wasn't there. It wasn't being innovative enough. So they had to burn it down and create a whole new culture to be able to compete with China. There's a reason there's an Air Force that came out of the Army because the Army was too rank and file, not being innovative enough, and we needed airplanes to go win wars early on. So they burned down the culture and created a whole new service. That's like pretty dramatic when you when you frame it that way. Like. The culture was not allowing us to go innovate, but that's what was happening. And this, the same thing happens when the bureaucracy creeps in. When it creeps into governing AI or to governing these new acquisition authorities that Congress keeps doling out secretly through the NDAs, um, it's, it's like, hey, we, we got to run with them while we got it. Because the moment we've upset someone's apple cart, they're going to come after us and, and say, oh, well, you got to have this check or you got to have like 15 other people review this thing before it can go out the door. And that just slows us down. I don't think that helps us be competitive. And I don't think it actually prevents any problems. It just creates more checks. But at the end of the day, if I need to get to a company, we're going to find a way to get to a company. I'll just use a different vehicle if there's going to be too many roadblocks in my way. Well, let's go deeper in a positive light with your specific efforts on this front you're to some degree also trying to upset the apple cart still doing what you're doing and uh i want to talk a little bit more about what that is with regard to software licensing and what your proposed what your efforts are working toward in terms of changing and arranging licensing deals because i mean a lot of us if you're definitely doing it you're buying licenses but i think as as we continue in this future, like a lot of our work is going to be understanding licensing models and licensing as part of IP, like understanding how intellectual property is accessed, transitioned, transferred, like all these things. So talk a little bit about what you're doing in your office right now to create something new and how that benefits like your mission objective with this new licensing model. So we're, we're trying this new thing out called Tools for All. And it's a name that I kind of just made up, but it dramatically shifts the business model of a tool vendor. So when I say tools, think of model-based system engineering, think of scheduling tools. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you guys have these in the, in the army and, and everywhere else. When you put something on contract, you have a set of deliverables you put on contract. The co- company has to put back a schedule. They have to put back their engineering drawings. You know, those are all the deliverables you're going to collect over the life of this contract. Well, instead of collecting those as paper copies or PDFs, 
it'd be much better and more useful to collect those as a model. So I can live inside the model. So I equated to my cell phone. When I put in my iPhone, the destination I want to go to, uh, that's an hour or two away. My phone map will continually update the time that I'm going to arrive at the destination based on new inputs throughout the entire journey. There's a car accident. I should reroute. There's a police scanner somewhere. It's going to continually update those things throughout the journey. And then by the time I get there, it will be telling me the exact time I'm going to arrive. The exact time. That's pretty powerful. Why can't we do that in our acquisitions? We could do it if we took deliverables as models. So when I say tools, I'm talking about anything that can be delivered as a model in the Air Force. So all of our schedule software, all of our schedule deliverables, our cost deliverables, our engineering drawings, those all things, all those are all things that could be part of a model. That that model is software. And then we have stuff we buy from a, a regular vendor. Like I buy an airplane or I buy a tank. Um, those, those things are something that our, our, our system was built to go support. Our acquisition system was built to support. Our POM cycle that we go through, that's you know this five-year behemoth, that was kind of built to support that. Uh, a side history on the POM, that was invented to go beat the Soviet Union because they planned on a five-year cycle. We did that in the 80s and we just kept it. Yeah. Now we're fighting now we're fighting a new adversary, but we still have to live with this arcane palm process that if I use that for software, imagine I'm planning five years out for software. Like it's not the software I need five years from now wasn't invented yet. Like terrible no, model. We know when I say we uh in Tradewind and our team and the people on our periphery. Like if you can't point at something, especially software, especially emerging technology, and be able to buy it, it it's kind of game over. That's that, that's the way we feel about it. So that's that that becomes part of the mission. Or when we're creating contracting pathways, or like kind of what you're describing, like it has to enable that kind of workflow. Yeah, yeah. So with tools for all, I got to a place where I, I looked at as a program manager, how am I going to go get relevant software? to all the groups yeah. that need it so we can live in the model. And I realized very quickly that we can never do it under the current situation. There's infinite amounts of software out there and I don't have infinite money and I don't have the ability to plan that quickly. The government can't adjust that quickly to the software we need at a given time. So I thought, what if we did it completely differently and just ask industry to give us their software for free? Give us all your tool software and then I realize you still have to make money in your business, but I have this really powerful thing called a Cedral. It's what we take our deliverables on. Inside a, a, a Cedral, I have the ability to actually specify a file format back to industry. Now, when I specify a file format, that means I need to take deliver, I expect deliver, delivery of that model in that file format. What we do now is we normally abdicate that responsibility and say, hey, contractor file format is acceptable deliver in whatever file format you want. Right. Well, what that is actually saying is the government has to be proficient in any kind of software, all kinds right. of software, because industry gets to pick. You allow them to pick. Instead of owning their position as the customer, and this is how I need the software, I can't tell you how many times the Air Force, and I'm sure this has happened in other places, has spent millions of dollars on a deliverable that we allow the contractor to put in whatever format they want. And then we get that format in and we don't actually own the software to view the deliverable that we just spent millions of dollars on. Like how terrible is that as a concept? 
So with Tools for All, we said, hey, <clears throat> tool vendors, give me, your, give me your tools for free and we'll create a list of all the tools that we have enterprise-wide software licenses for. If we have an enterprise-wide license, now anyone in the department can use that software tool. They have just pull down the license, everyone can use it. And it will create competition amongst the utility of the tools. Because now I can, I'm not, I'm not constrained by I only have this tool or that tool. I have all the tools now. I pick the tool I want. I put that file format on the contract. That now forces my industry partner, whoever's delivering me the tank or the airplane, to go and make sure they can deliver in that tool, which means they're going to have to go buy that software. Now, what it doesn't mean is that they have to develop in that tool. Um, it means they have to make a business decision. The industry partner that's making the airplane or the tank, they have to say, is it worth the risk that I develop in, in my own tool that I have and then do a conversion into the tool that the government says they want to view it in? Or do I de develop it natively on the tool? I think anybody in this space will tell you the risk is much lower to develop natively. So of course, they are going to have that business decision to make, but it should drive them to use those different tools. And that's where the industry, the tool vendors that have given us their software can go make, make their money, right? They make their money selling to, to our industry partners, our, our big primes, instead of trying to make it off the government where I now have to guess how much training I need, how much software I got to buy, how many lessons I got to buy, where I'm going to host it. Like it's, it's a train wreck trying to figure all this stuff out. And it's really not possible under the new model. I don't have to worry about that. Anyone that wants to be uh, working with the government just gives me their tool. Now, if they decide, you know what? I already got a ton of government market share. I don't need to give my tool to the government. That could work for them, assuming there's no other competitors in their space. But if there are, and I get that competitor's tool for free, and I, I control policy, I can go write a policy that says, you have to pick a, pick a file format before your contract can go out. I, and you have to pick from this list that we have enterprise-wide licenses for because heaven forbid I buy something that I can't read because I don't have the software for it. Now that person that had tons of market share in the government rapidly loses market share because we're going to be using the other tool. And that's, I don't believe there's that big a disparity between the tools in most right. cases. I think there's competition. I think it's a good way to bring out healthy competition. I, I think that's the piece that in, in this concept where you're really challenging, where you're the part of the workflow gets really challenged is, is, is what you said going to happen or is, is that true? That's the interesting part to me in general is like, can you, uh, we often talk about being stymied or in, into, you know, we, we say a vendor, right? But you're, it's really a tool, like a product, a, um, a thing. And can, are you really creating an environment where that think tools can be used interchangeably depending and it, it would truly be customer preference, right? Like you're truly creating rather than writing a requirement, meeting a requirement, it's like the best tool wins and people are just picking tools and writing those into their contracts is what I'm hearing. As the format file, they want information or data to be uh, received back to the government. That's exactly right. And what it should create is a virtuous cycle for the tool vendors. So right now a tool yeah. vendor to sell into the government has to, I mean, we're not an easy customer by any stretch of the imagination. We have lots of rules and 
finding out who's going to buy your stuff is hard. So they invest heavily on their, their sales team to be able to sell into the government. And then uh, once they, they get in the government, now they, they try to get this foothold in. So they want to sell us training and all this other stuff. And that choose, like choose up money that we didn't plan for. We didn't plan to spend money on this tool maybe right away or, or whatever. Instead, this allows the tool vendor to compete on what makes on their core competency on the tool itself, mm-hmm. right? They're competing okay. for adoption, for, for utilization of their tool. So instead of spending all that money on the sales team, they can now put all that money back in to product development, product development yeah. user experience, and training. And I, I don't actually expect to, to spend anything on training for these tools either. I think the companies are, are properly incentivized to train the government on how to use their tool if they want the government to ever select their tool to be used, right? I the would the even, incentives are yeah, in place. And I would even argue uh, in, in the way I feel like modern software is happening, like a lot of times chat uh, GPT as an example, like there's no training. You just get in there and you just start doing stuff. Um, like tools, I think are evolving in a way where they're not just, I wouldn't call it super user-friendly, um, but the functions are more user intuitive than they are. Like you need this full training class to understand the primary features and functions kind of thing. I see training, software training becoming a more like advanced software users and stuff who are doing things beyond basic functionality because when I hear, sorry, and, and I might be simplifying things because I'm thinking of scheduling tools, like program management tools. Like how do I organize data and information about a project? Like these are the types of tools I'm thinking about. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, no one teaches, teaches me how to use the apps on my iPhone. Like, exactly. The user experience is there. They've worked it. So like my kids can figure it out very, very simply. Yeah. I would love for tool vendors to go down that path. And then even for your high-end like engineering tools, I mean, yeah. it shouldn't be rocket science to be able to use a tool. So and my, if it is rocket my, science, I'm not going to use it. Yeah. One of my favorite examples is on like on my personal side, I, I have a small business and I'm by no means like a media marketing graphics person, but there's this thing out there called Canva and it's made doing that type of work, almost like layman's people like me who don't have any expertise or profession in that lane, I can drag and drop you know, things in a, in a setting where I'm creating pictures or videos or presentations. And that's the, I think that's the type of even like high-end engineering tools can be of that nature where, I mean, video editing, I remember in college, you had to have like this Adobe software to do any kind of advanced video editing. Now you can do it all on your phone. Like these things are happening and they can cross there. I think is potential and carryover or crossover into even these not so obvious functional lanes like engineering, like you're talking about. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, a lot of people to get back on tools for all, I, I get a lot of questions. How do you get software for free in the government? And I'm a contracting officer. I know we can't get stuff for free. I know it. I know all the rules, but the way we do it is through OTs. With OTs, I have to go to go make a deal. Other transactions, I can go make a deal with industry. And the deal that I'm offering up to industry is, hey, you can be on our list of software vendors that are selectable for someone to put on o, on Ocedral if you give us enterprise-wide license for your software. I, I don't really care what you sell it to my, my partners for on the back end, but know that it has to make business sense still. 
So if my partner comes back to me, my the guy that makes the airplane or the or the tank, and says, "Look, you said I got to deliver in this in this file format, but they're charging me crazy money for this thing. Like it's gonna totally ruin the cost of your program." Maybe that would make me reconsider which software I picked. But when it comes to paying for software, right now I have to go plan to go for a specific license buy and palm for that. If I do it this way, I actually open up the entire budget of the service to go pay for software because my program budget was already lobbied for, already approved program to go buy the tank or the airplane. And if that just gets baked in as an overhead cost, like these guys got to have software, I, I get to pay for it on every line item of that. And it's it allows me to actually unlock the funding that Congress has given me for that program instead of trying to lobby Congress to say, or even my internal service structure, like in the Air Force, I have to go through this behemoth POM, POM process and they don't really pick new stuff. Nothing new makes it in, this, in the system. It's very painful. The Digital Transformation Office, for example, has been the number one priority in Air Force Material Command, which the largest, one of the larger commands in the Air Force, if not the largest. And it's certainly the most important in terms of acquisition stuff. We've been zeroed out every time at the corporate corporate structure. It wasn't until Congress started giving us congressional ads that we might, we have a chance in FY25 to maybe get some money. But that, that process is terrible. I would much rather just leverage all the money that we're already spending on programs to go buy software. So actually for, for software companies and for people that think we should be living in the model of these tools, it opens up the entire playbook, the entire wallet of the government to say, I agree with you, let's go. Let's open up the mechanics a little bit more for maybe the not as contracting savvy people out there. So the process starts with, let's create a list for, for this tools for all initiative. And in order to create the list, you have to get vendors to give you software for free. And the mechanic, the contracting mechanism to do that would be other transactions. And so you would enter into these arrangements with vendors who are willing to give enterprise licenses and we say for free, but we understand there's consideration back to the vendor, right? Like the consideration even to enter into a legal instrument like OTs would be what? So the consideration is we're actually going to open up and show usage to provide value back to the tool vendor. These tool vendors ah. have dozens and dozens of features in the tool that they may think are really important features. But when they look at our usage, and say we're one of their primary customers, and they say, well, gosh, this guy is really only using two or three of the features. Maybe I should spend my time developing on those features instead of doing all these other features that are non-value added to the community. That's so, that's a big deal for them. It, is. it gives them market yeah. research. Yeah, we use a similar approach with uh, one of our CSO commercial solutions opening models, TriAI, where um, when we get into whether it's non-monetary or these low cost type projects, um, we like to offer back something similar where, you know, not only do we give them feedback, I think you're offering a little bit step further. Um, you're willing to share feedback and uh, create, I would say, a more formal feedback loop back to the vendor to help improve their product. Absolutely. Yeah. So that that's that's a big part of the consideration. Uh, and, the, and the other part of the consideration is they are now selectable. I mean, they yeah, weren't selectable so, before, right? Right. So vendor A has a tool 
let's just say it's a scheduling tool. They're they're willing to give you the an enterprise license software. We're going to create some kind. Of, so that means there's a commitment on us, right? Like someone, whether someone has to be using or at least playing with the tool, whether it's selected to go on a contract, right? To be included in a seed role, right? So for sure. And what, well, so that's an interesting point you make there. So software vendors come to me and we, we had an industry day gosh, a few months ago now where I kind of pitched this to some of the industry partners and they were like, this is cool. What if I give you my tool and it never makes it onto a seed rule? Like no one right. ever uses it. Right. My answer to them was, well, if I never used it, I would never have bought it to begin with. So you're not actually out anything. You had the opportunity to, to, to get into the game. And this gave you a foot in the door that you wouldn't have had otherwise because I never would use your stuff. But now you got feedback, very valuable feedback that my tool is not hitting the mark competitively against its peers. Some other tool beating it. Are, are we, and when I say we, right, like your team, government, not necessarily helping them understand the why, but are we giving them data that could help them understand why is their tool not hitting the mark? Absolutely. So they'll be able to look in and see the usage of their tool, right? Ah, I see. Their tool is okay. not being used, right? So they're, they're, that, that's a big indicator right there. It's not being used at all. Or if it is being used, it's only being used in this one scenario. Why is it just that scenario? So one of the things that I've, I've, we've kicked around, and, and this is all still pretty fluid, right? Like this right. is all conceptual. We're prototyping this out. We're working with an agreements officer to, to get it over the finish line, which has been you know, a challenge because it's different for government, right? Like to, to kind of think this way, but I would love a sandbox that these tool vendors can all play in and they would actually have access to each other's tools as well. Interesting. What I, I, I think one of the things that will drive tool utilization is tool interoperability. So like I have my schedule tool that I use and I can take the outputs of that and feed it into this other tool that's going to give me better cost data that feeds in this other tool, it gives me better, you know, materials data or something. Like it's not a one tool fits all scenario. In many cases, there could be dozens of tools that go into a contract based on the type of seed rules that are being used and uh, the deliverables that we expect back. But interoperability throughout the stack, I think is really important um, when it comes to leveraging a software. Like I would pick, I might pick one software over another software if I knew that I had another need for that data that's going to be output from the software and, you know, further downstream. So if they, these companies had the ability to play with each other's tools in the sandbox with the government um, involved in that too, I think there's a lot of good that can come from it. And it kind of gets us back to, you know, the, the, the pre World War II days when we're developing with industry, it's very collaborative space and not this like doggy dog world. I, I don't know if we'll get to that in this tools for all concept. But it's something that I, I would like to see at least explored a little bit where it's, it's we're, we're all just trying to get better. We're all trying to get better. And we, we have to, by the way, like we're, we're fighting China. It's a real fight. I mean, we just quadrupled our, our troop forces in Taiwan. Like the fight is real and we're going to lose if we can't move faster. And that's like tough to say and probably not fair to say, but it, it is real. And the tools are going to help us move faster. So anyone that's going to give us a tool, that should be the, the, their why. Like, forget about, I'm going to give you feedback in your tools. Like, you don't want to be speaking Mandarin. You want to be speaking English and you want to be 
living in the country that you know and love, like we need this to win. So I, I know I can't use that as my consideration for, for a deal, but like, okay. that's really why they should be doing it. And we'll come up with a consideration piece uh, to, to make it completely legal. But like companies should want to do this so we can be better and we can beat China. So the OT arrangement gets them on the list and then the list is distributed throughout the Air Force. Is that, that the idea? And and people yeah, can choose, choose tools on the list for their contract requirements. So yeah, so there's a couple parts to this. So there's a policy that changes. So when you go through contracts to put a contract out, you have to go through like a review process. In the one of the, one of the parts of the reviewer checklist will be updated, where they are actually going to look at the cedral and see that there's a file format specified. That's the, your contract doesn't get out the door. Your RFP doesn't go out the door if you don't have a specified file format on your cedrals. So people are going to say, well, which files do I get to pick from? Well, here's the list. You get to pick from these lists. And uh, ideally, it's categorized by what the software can do. So it's a schedule cedral. Here's all the schedule software that we have available. My thought is that it's like 15 or 30 or 100. Who knows? It's, a, it's, it's more than one. And here's a place you can go try the ones out you want to try. If you've never used schedule software before, go play them, figure out which one you want to use, which one's going to work best for the program. They get in there, they start using them and they select the one that makes the most sense for them based on their program needs, based on user experience, based on that tools interoperability. They put that file format in. Now that contract can go out the door. We, we just completed the whole loop of what we said we would do with uh, the tool vendor what we have to do with our industry partners that are going to deliver the airplane to the tank. And now we have uh, our government, like for schedule software program manager, leveraging a tool and living in the model instead of getting a Word document or an Excel file that says, hey, here are my milestones that you're going to hit on these dates. That thing is only relevant the moment it's printed. Yeah. The real-time data element of using tools as models in your or file formats in your cedrals, I, I think is huge in general. Where do you see people are gonna try to try to crush this concept? Like what element of the workflow that you just described, or where are is that already happening now as you're working with an agreements officer and legal to try and execute this vision? Yeah, so they I think honestly, I think there's groups that would like to just see this quietly go away because it's different and it's hard for, on the government side. Industry has actually been very supportive of the concept. Why would they be supportive of a concept like this? Because they all think they have the best software. They're competitive and they, they believe in their stuff. They believe in their products and they should think they have the best software and they should want to have the best product and they should want to compete for the best product. Being able to right now with the structure we have, we allow software vendors and really any kind of vendor to compete based on how well they can sell into the government, not how good the product is. That's a problem that this kind of fixes. That's a big statement. Big statement. Yeah, I mean, Sorry. Huge statement. You're better at selling the government. You get more government contracts instead of you have the best stuff, the best thing, the best widget. And that's what, that's where I want to get to a place where it, we allow this healthy competition to occur. And it makes all the tool vendors better, by the way, like they will be making themselves better. Uh, so the tool vendors are excited about it where 
in my in my structure where does this really break down is say I get all the tools for free tomorrow. Everyone signs up, all the vendors are all in. Now I got to host all those tools somewhere. That has a real cost to it. Maybe I don't think it actually has a cost as high as we say it should cost. I think our contracts that we have in place to to do tool hosting and integrations are terrible contracts. To, to be frank, they're uh, so back in the '90s. Another aside, just indulge me. Back in the '90s and even before then, we started seeing consolidation amongst the aircraft providers. We had a whole bunch of airplane makers down to now we have like three, maybe four airplane makers. So we have way less competition than we had before because they they played this doggy dog world to try to get after those limited government funds to get the airplane contracts. And now we have hardly any competition amongst amongst really the big three uh, for, for airplane contracts. We have the software tool industry going down the exact same pathway. You have all these little tools out there that are great that someone coded somewhere and that are very valuable. They're starting to be bought up. The DeSos of the world are picking up tools, semen, like all these different groups are, uh, SAIC, they're picking up different tools, they're consolidating them all, and they're offering them back to the government as a giant platform. Right. But what they're doing, which is, I'm not do. it's a good business model for them in, in short-term thinking, but it's bad for the country, it's bad for innovation, is they're making their tool suites very interoperable inside their own suite. So they have a schedule tool, they have a cost tool, they have all these other tools. They all work really well together, but if I want to take one guy's schedule tool and another guy's cost tool and make them work together, they don't work. And it makes it, they're, they're making actually putting roadblocks in there intentionally so they can't work and they sell you the whole suite. So you have these massive contracts, just like we now have airplanes. And guess what? Our airplane manufacturers, they don't do much of the stuff on the airplane. They integrate all the parts for everyone else. They're just a giant, but they get all the money. That's what our software vendors are starting to do. That's an untenable pathway that we are on. We will we will crash and burn if we get to where we only have two or three tool vendors that are the now arbiters of which tools, what technology we have, which ones can work on our networks. We don't wanna be in that space. We wanna be able to take something that someone just wrote in their garage very quickly because they had a cool idea and it works really well. We wanna be able to bring that in like immediately if we, if we can. Right now, I don't think we can do that. In the future state, if we go down tools for all, we can absolutely do that. But if we don't go down this path and we stick to the traditional model, we're gonna get ourselves into these ridiculous vendor lock scenarios where it's, we're gonna be playing between a, a handful of large tool vendors and that's it. And all the other guys are closed out. So we have no more innovation occurring. That's interesting. It, it reminds me of a former life when doing a lot of software, cyber software type of buys and settings. And Donnie Davis, he's a systems and I would say systems engineer by trade, but um, he's very very much a hands-on keyboard type of dude. And he taught me a lot about engineering and, and like how, how to make software tools. Like how do you make them work? Like how do like there's there's a foundation to that that has to work before you can get to like oh I need to use a tool and run a tool and stuff like that. He would always talk about this car factory model when it comes to developing software and 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 I think you're you're offering a possible solution to getting closer to this car factory model where if you think about how cars are made like it's it's pretty phenomenal uh, and and especially over time like how the scale and the volume of 
what has to go into making a car. You're literally doing what you're talking about, but putting pieces of the parts together in a rapid fashion to assemble something that we can drive and do other things with. And if you take that same concept and or model for software, like you need to enable an environment where like in, in, in the car factory model, like they, they're, they're looking for like the best bolt person, right? Like they're not going to find one dude that builds a car. They're going to find somebody that makes bolts and they're going to find someone that makes tires and somebody that does this and that, and they have to assemble it all together at some point. So how do you, from a software perspective, enable this environment? Um, and I do see your concept as a, an enabler to getting there where you are getting the best of the best of different modalities maybe or functions or features whatever you, however you want to call it for managing our contracts through tools and and they're not i wouldn't say they're they're not exclusive of each other but ho hopefully if you're if you you know if we get close to your vision they're interoperable with each other which like a car like when we integrate pieces and parts of a car and and then we get a little bit closer to this better better place we should be in terms of rapid delivery of uh, capability. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's the key. We need rapid delivery of capability. The tools enable us to get after capability faster. The tools are just a tool, right? There's lots of tools yeah. that exist, but they're way to an end. And that end is kinetic in many cases. That end is gonna protect us because it's a deterrent. Like whatever that end is, we need to get there faster and we need to be able to run all the scenarios in the model to show that, hey, this is the best solution of all the possible scenarios. I, I ran 10 million scenarios. This is the one that gets us to W. This is the one that gets us to victory. That's what we need in our tools on every schedule cost. They, they, we got to be able to balance them, see the information. And will an AI make the decision one day on what is the best, what isn't the best? Like maybe. Will there yeah. always be some government oversight? Probably that comes in into play there. But that's, that's where we need to get to very fast decision-making because our adversaries are moving at that speed. It sounds like you've already talked to a number of people in industry about this. What, and it, it sounds like you believe based on those discussions that they're, this is not something they would shy away from. Is that correct? Oh yeah. I have had no industry pushback, literally none. The only ones that gave me a kind of like a funny eyebrow were the ones that were really already had a good foothold in government. Probably shouldn't name any companies by name, but it's a high-end modeling could... tool. And they, uh, I was, I was explaining to the concept, the concept to them at AFA, and they were like, "Gosh, we already do like, I don't know, fifty, sixty million dollars a year with the government. Like that's a big, big shift for us." I'm like, "It is a big shift, but that could go to zero if you don't do this, because if I have that's a what... competitor that's." just as good or almost as good, but I don't have to spend any money on it. Like that's, that's, that's what's going to go in. They have the enterprise wide license my whole team can use. So here's another problem that this solves. So imagine you have a really good engineer that spent seven years on a, a high-end program. Again, I'll use an Air Force reference because that's what I know, but the B-21, super fancy airplane, like high-end, new thing, has tons of money, and they can buy whatever cool software they want inside their program office, and they do. That engineer spent seven years there, finally gets a promotion, moves over to uh, maybe like uh, the B-52, 
or the C17, like a program that probably doesn't have tons of money, doesn't get to buy whatever software they want. Then engineer leaves and he goes over to this new, new, new uh, program office and they don't have the software that he used, that he spent seven years learning how to use. And now we took that seven years of knowledge and we made it way less useful in this new program office because he doesn't have access to the tool. When you have enterprise-wide licenses, that's transferable. Anyone can use any tool anywhere. So it, it, it makes my workforce that much more capable on the back end because I can plug and play people, career progression can occur, whatever. And I'm not going to be hamstrung by this learning curve that now has to happen because they don't have the tool. They got to go back and learn the DOS-based tool. I mean, I don't know yeah. what your guys' like, uh, time cards are done on. Ours are literally like a DOS-based tool. It's like pathetic. Yeah. And just imagine that, like going from a high-end program where you can do all the fancy things to a, a program that doesn't have all the money, that's been around for a while, and now you have to go back in time. Like that's demoralizing and you're way less effective. Yeah, that, so the, the key for what I'm gleaning from this conversation again is the the policy change that is a forcing function to the contracting workforce that requires them to pick from your list is pretty critical is what I'm hearing. Yeah. That, so I, I got to have some way to provide a value proposition to the tool vendors, right? They make good yeah. tools. They, they need to make money. Like there's no yeah. such thing as a free lunch, basic economics. Right. So that that's the value add I have. I mean, look, the government is a, when it comes to a lot of tools that, that we would be talking about, model-based tools, the heavy data-laden tools, the government is a great supplier of big data stuff, right? We buy big things. We spend a lot of money. We, we complex weapon systems. We have a lot of things that are very well suited to those tools. But the reality is, most of my team, most of the government engineers that exist, most of the permission, they're not the ones designing the weapon system, right? We pay industry to go do that. What we're doing in the government is doing the verification and val validation of a requirement on a contract. So I'm doing oversight. I don't need to use the heavy end pieces of the tool, right? Really, I need an Adobe Reader version of stock. Most things like I have a new reader version. I can, I can, I can see the model. I can live in the model, but I'm not, I don't need to manipulate that level. Now, some people in government do, and I don't want to disparage those people because we need more of that probably. But in, in those scenarios, like they'll have a tool they can leverage, but we need that. We need the ability to see everything that's going on. That policy change enables that where we are now forcing a file format and we're doing that based on the fact that we actually own the software to, to, to see it, to read it. And if we, once we do that, we've opened up the, our ability of our engineers and, and every other functional to actually go learn the software that they want to live with, right? Because yeah. they have a choice. They have a voice in the matter. So does this mean you're going to get us out of the 10-year-old, whatever outdated version of Microsoft that we have? Is this gonna... right, so I'll, I'll say another probably controversial thing. I believe our security posture when it comes to IT networks and infrastructure is one of our biggest threats to national security. It makes us too slow. It, I mean, you said it, right? We're using way old versions of Microsoft. We're using way old versions of all the software because it's been validated and it's been proven to be, you know, more locked down. 
it, honestly, it's just the wrong approach. Like the bad guys that want to get after us that have the technology to hack into these things, they're hacking into them anyways, right? China's in our networks. Everyone knows they're all over some of even our, our secret networks. Uh, they took all my OPM data, like back in 2012. Like they, they have all of our data. They, they, they know what they're doing. So we're not going to stop them and, unless it's like a really high end, you know, air gap kind of network. Like we're not stopping that level of, of hacking ability. So let's just go faster. Let's just go faster than everybody. So now they have to go and catch up to us. Let's not hide away certain things in a program that are, you know, our, our crown jewels of a program. Now we're just showing, well, if you can hack this thing, you get the crown jewels. Like let's, let's open up the phone a little bit. Say, look, everything's important. We're just going to go so fast. It doesn't matter if you steal it. And I, I think it was Elon Musk that, that said he doesn't patent stuff because it just, it just literally gives a roadmap for how everyone else can go copy him, even if it's patent infringement or whatever else. Instead, he just goes really fast and out-innovates them. I, mean, I was at CES. This year, there's tons of electric cars. None of them are Teslas. Tesla's so much further ahead, which was interesting to see because he yeah. just runs faster. That's what yeah. we have to do. That's our greatest defense is speed. It's definitely a different mindset, what you're describing, for sure. So where are you or your team in kind of executing this vision? Do you have agreements on in place? That so I have an agreements officer build? that I have an agreements officer um, inside PEO Bez. We've gone through two, three rounds with a reviewer and with the attorney. I'm waiting patiently. Less and less so patiently each day, but yeah. I'm waiting patiently to for, for it to play itself out. We've socialized it with industry. This is now the second podcast I've done on the topic. And the first podcast got good reviews too, is on federal drive. But but ultimately we're we're going to roll out one way or another. I know there's some really good uh, agreements officers over in the army that are willing to take on this if if my team or the people that I have that are can't get it through policy. I, I think everyone wants to do it. It's a question of just <clears throat> the mechanics and are they comfortable with the mechanics? Back when I was an agreements officer, I, 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 had, I was the one that could sign it. So it was easy for me to go yeah. and make the deal because I was the one signing it. Now I'm the one making the deal, but not the one signing it because I don't sit right. in that capacity anymore. So it's much harder because it's not their idea, right? They're having to jump on my idea and, and agree with it and all the ways we're going about it. And I, and I think I'm getting everyone there, but uh, it, just, it hasn't moved as fast as I would have liked. To be honest, I would have hoped we would have had our first prototype on the, on the street by now. But I, I am confident we'll have something this FY, this fiscal year. Um, okay. And I think we're going to limit it to a single software category. So like schedule software is, is yeah. where we're probably going to target some type of like PM type software and just prototype it from there. And if it works for that, maybe we'll tack on two or three other ones. And we'll probably do the, the model-based system engineering tools last because those are the highest cost tools and the ones that are probably being most utilized anyways right now. I, I, I don't know anyone that takes deliver, delivery of model-based schedules on the contracts right now. Yeah, I would put money that no one's doing that, right? Like everyone's doing the exactly. like traditional, like you said, contractor format, or if there is a format, it's it's still Microsoft, Excel, PDFs, and then maybe like if it's an engineering thing, it's specs, you know, and CAD drawings or whatever. Well, it's and with the engineering things, what we would happen or what would happen is if they were using a tool that we didn't have access to, they would take PDF screenshots of their tool and deliver that 
Yeah. Like completely worthless. I mean, honestly, yeah. like, there's no value in that other than you check the box that you delivered something for your cedral. It doesn't help. This anybody. could be this could be a big deal for delivery of code in particular. Like, uh, when, when, if we're talking, like I. I know there's, I don't want to get into commercial versus government owned or government purpose rights type of conversations, but in the instance where you have to deliver code, that's always been a struggle. Like where, where does it go? How is it hosted? You know, kind of the state, the, I would, I would say the, the, what I see most people doing is like, what, where's, where's the GitHub repository, you know, so what, like instead, right, of, of delivering, I don't even know how you would deliver it otherwise today in modern software, but so like, I think that could that could be game changing just from that element. Like, how do we how does the government take delivery of code and then be able to pass it on to to somebody who under you know who can do something with it? Can do something with it, yeah. No, and yeah. and you asked me earlier too, where does the model fall down? And I and I I mentioned that you know going out and getting all this stuff hosted uh, costs money. Yeah. And right now, and I don't know how the government does it, but right now the Air Force has a customer funded model for for. For, for most tools. We're working on uh, another way that's more centralized called uh, Launchpad, but it currently is a customer-funded model. And it's uh, done with a large integrator, uh, say the company name, but a large integrator. And they charge you know so much fee to go bring on the software. Well, then people wanna know, well, what's in the fee? If I'm paying for this, I wanna know what goes in that fee. So then if they do get a fee breakdown, which they normally don't, but assuming they do get a fee breakdown, they're like, well, hey, I'll do this part myself. I'll do this part myself. Well, here's how much I'll give you. But it doesn't work that way. That's not how these guys want the contract. And it's just like a bad model. The customer funded model does not work in government because the government is effectively a socialist institution. Right? It's not our money. There's no capitalist drive that makes us compete to do better. Like Congress gives us money. We spend the money. Like there's no, yeah. that, that's how it works. So it, it's a bad model in government to do customer funded. So what tools for all does another benefit of this is say, I, 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 I got to pay for hosting. Well, I already know that all these different programs, all these different groups have pawned money for software. From now I'm getting their software for free. What happens to that money? I think I can use a portion of that to pay for hosting. I can use a portion of that to scale out the team needed to do the ATOs on software so we can make it go much faster to make sure it is secure. I mean, I, look, I don't want to put bad stuff on the network, right? But we need to find a way to make this process much faster. And one of the things I love about the tools for all concept, say I do bring them a hundred tools all at once. Now it's on them, on them by the, the group responsible in each service that does the cyber checks, does all the pieces to make sure this, this stuff's safe and does the ATO process onboards all this. It's on them now, almost like a wartime footing of like, I got, I've got to get, got to figure out a new way. Our model is broken. We got to figure out a new way to, to rapidly get these things through. And that'll be a really healthy discussion on how they do that. And I think there'll be money to, to assist them in that. If we can repurpose what we were spending on software in, into this space, but like we need to get them along for the ride. And I think the only way to do it is just here's 500 different pieces of software, please onboard it on the network. Oh crap. What do we do now? And then that's yeah. where it kicks off that that thought process. How do we go faster? How do we do better? Well, regardless of, you know, because I I think you you touched on, like you said, a lot of whether you would call it unpopular opinions or concepts where 
whether you agree with the concept or not, I can at least appreciate and I would submit others can appreciate you are trying to do something different, period. And you you are taking on the burden of being of, of conducting the great experiment to which we can learn from and and maybe get to a better place tomorrow or next year or something like that. So I think you got some work to do, right? It sounds like you're you're in the very sure. beginning stages of of getting this going. I'll definitely be in touch with you, see how we can leverage what you're doing or learn from what you're doing. Anything else you wanna that you didn't didn't get said that you wanted to say that you want to leave with the audience? I mean, really, I, credit to my 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 leadership, my boss for allowing me to even try. Most most groups would be like, "This is a waste of time. It's never gonna happen." Uh, you need to be an organization that will allow you to take risks, especially when they evaluate the upside and the downside. The upside of this is massive game changer. The downside is I wasted some time and I'm just like, you know, an ineffective government worker for that period of time. Like I'm sure we'll learn a whole bunch through the process, but I, I don't think it's that big of a deal. My time's a sunk cost anyways. And, and I'm trying something, right? So I've had, I've been fortunate actually in most of my jobs where I've had a good leader that says, hey, Vince, go try. Hey, Swath, go do. And sometimes my experiments work pretty awesome. Sometimes they don't work out so well. And we go back to the drawing board, but you got to be in an organization that allows for that. And then if you are an individual that is thinking about, there's got to be a better way to do something like that's your calling to go be the better way. Like you don't get to push it off on somebody else. You have to go invent the better way. If you think this way sucks, it's on you to make it better. And if you do that, you'll find a lot of uh, joy and passion and purpose in the work that you do every day. And you'll be much more committed to your government job. You talked about having side businesses. I have my own business outside the government as well. That does plenty fine. I don't need my government job. I do this job because someone has to do it. And I know we need it for the country. And that's why I, I show up and I, I do it. I put a lot of energy and passion in the work. It's that knowing that I can make the difference and believing I can be a difference that keeps me here. And I know we have retention problems and all other sorts of stuff in civilian workforce and government in general. If you let your people, if you're a leader and you let your people believe, truly believe that they can make an impact and do something different, your retention rates will skyrocket. People will be here. They'll show up. They'll work the extra hours. No one will complain. They're here to go make a difference. People want to be change makers. So give them the runway to go do that. And I think if we have people that are willing to take on that burden to be the change maker, we have leaders that are willing to let people be change makers. Good things will happen. Mm. Don't, don't, if I could just offer you one thing based on what you said, don't undervalue your lessons learned. That's not a waste of time. We as the government don't value lessons learned, even if it didn't work out enough. Well, so. I, I totally agree with you. And it's funny. I mean, in the Air Force, I'm sure it's somewhere in the Army, especially on the acquisition side. Yeah. We get the stories of the failures rarely do we get the stories of someone that just did something well and like here's the things that went really well here's all there's always things that go poorly so it's a so culture of, of fear that we've created like i don't yeah. want to be the tanker program right they got yeah. protested they got you know so that was always oh. our marching orders in the b21 instead of here's like 10 programs we want to be like let's lift them up here's what they yeah. tried and they swung the bat and they won or even if they didn't win they swung the bat and it was awesome like that's, we don't tell those stories. Yeah. I would also offer, even with the stuff that didn't 
whatever tanker program or whatever you're referring to, like what if the failure of that birthed the next great big thing? Because you realize that wasn't working. Someone said, stop the madness, go back to the drawing board and you came up with something better. That's the part of the story like no one's telling. So sorry, I digress. No, I totally agree with you. They need to get to a place where that's a positive story. It didn't yeah. work and we're jazzed about it. I know, again, I talked about Roper again, but he had a uh, he had an award he would give out. I think it was the Running of Scissors Award. Um, he was our, <laughs> our AQ guy. And it was for the biggest failure. Like the yeah. biggest failure, he would give that award out. And I don't know how many times he actually gave it out or if it even had an, an impact on, you know, past the immediate group because I didn't hear too much about it afterwards. But like the concept alone was transformational for the Air Force and just the military in general. We live in this can't fail mission mindset all the time. And it's like, by failing to fail, we are failing. I mean, we're not learning, we're not getting the growth, we're not being as innovative as we could be, and, and we're sacrificing the big wins by not allowing ourselves to fail more often. For sure. All right, Swath, thanks for sharing. Thank you for your time. I'm sure we'll be in touch. Thanks so much, Swath. Thank you so much, Vince, for joining us today. I learned a lot from your presentation, and I wanted to thank Bonnie again for keeping the conversation going to give us all the information we needed out of today's episode. We hope to see you all again in our next episode of AI Proficiency Turning Tomorrow into Today. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of AI Proficiency Turning Tomorrow into Today. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure to like, follow, and subscribe, and share this podcast within your network. These actions move mountains for our mission of sharing artificial intelligence knowledge. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week on our next episode of AI Proficiency, Turning Tomorrow into Today.